Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, page 1125 in your pew Bible, if that's what you're using this morning. The last two weeks, we've been exploring six fundamental truths about Paul's Gospel that we must understand so that we may fulfill the purposes for which or the purpose for which we have been saved. These six fundamental truths come to us here in the first verses of Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 1. Let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 6. We'll begin together. Paul, a bond of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Six fundamental truths that are lodged in this greeting as it opened, Paul opens his letter to the churches at Rome. We've said over the last couple of weeks, and this is just to get you uh, your minds in gear here reviewing, We noted that the source of Paul's Gospel here is God at the end of verse 1. The Gospel of God or God's Gospel. That's our first fundamental truth that we explored together. We noted in verse 2 that the substantiation of Paul's Gospel is the Scriptures. We noticed in last week in verses 3 and 4 that the substance of Paul's Gospel is Jesus Christ our Lord. And we also noticed last week that the sine qua non, the essence of Paul's gospel, is obedience in verse 5. And that now leads us to the fifth that I want to just jump right into this morning. I have been waiting to uh, preach this message for a while now, and I've got it um, all fired up within me. So let's see if I can get it out in some kind of orderly fashion. The fifth, all right, the fifth fundamental truth about Paul's Gospel is that it is worldwide. Paul's Gospel, the scope of it, is worldwide. The scope of Paul's Gospel is worldwide. Verses 5 and 6. It's in that simple phrase there, the end of verse 5, that he is, he is uh, chosen to uh, an apostle. He is ordained to be an apostle to bring about the obedience consisting of faith among all the Gentiles. There it is. Among all the Gentiles. Paul's calling as an apostle is unique in both of its occurrence and its purpose. That afternoon on the Damascus Road, Jesus Christ forcefully seized this man, converted him, and assigned him a task, a purpose. 
And that purpose was to carry a message that he had been intent on destroying to a people that he absolutely despised. That's having your life turned on its head. Turned on its head. Paul became the apostle, the messenger of God to the Gentiles. The scope of his ministry is worldwide. This is incredible. This is a turning point, really, in the history of humanity. That afternoon, Christ said, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings and the sons of Israel. God chose this man to carry forth the name of Jesus Christ, the message of redemption in Christ to the Gentiles. That is something that was absolutely unthinkable. Unthinkable for the nation at large and certainly unthinkable for a man as steeped in Pharisaical Judaism as Paul was. By divine commission, this man becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And he understood vividly what this required. Later on, A.D. 49, at the Council of the Jerusalem Council, we have recorded for us over in Galatians 2, Paul's meeting with the, uh, some of the other apostles when his gospel was under attack. And he says there in Galatians 2, verses 7 and 9, speaking to them, he says, Seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That is, that Peter and John were to go to the Jewish nation, but Paul was to go to the Gentiles. He was the one to bring the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in all of its fullness to the most despised peoples. Perhaps this is the reason that Paul can write so confidently to this church or these churches, these house churches here in Rome. Looking at verse 6, I think we can infer from this that these house churches were made up of Gentiles. There were many Gentiles as part of it. If you take out the end of the clause in verse 5, it says, for his name's sake, and you just put the end of 5 and 6 together, it says, his apostleship was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. These were Gentile believers. There are Jewish believers here in Rome, but there are a lot of Gentile believers, evidently. And so Paul, fulfilling his divine commission, feels confident in addressing these Gentiles with the truths the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is more to this little phrase here among all the Gentiles that lies beneath the surface. And that's what I really want to try to dig out with you this morning. More than just the surface truth that Paul was to bring a message to a despised people. That's true and its implications are huge there, but there is more underneath that. This phrase, and you're going to have to think with me a little on this this morning, but this phrase, all the Gentiles, 
pasentoised ethnicin in the Greek, and I only give that to you because I'm going to have to come back to that in a minute. It carries a lot of freight. All right, this little phrase bears a lot of freight, and it means more than simply non-Jews. This phrase, all the Gentiles, he is communicating something here more than just non-Jews. The word ethnosin is the plural of the word ethnos. We in the English get the word ethnic from this Greek word ethnos. And in the singular, ethnos is the singular, it always in the Scripture refers to a particular people group. A group of people that share certain common characteristics of language and culture. Ethnos, alright, and it is typically translated by the word nation in the English translations. The word nation is this word ethnos, the singular, and it is talking about a group of people that have common characteristics of language and culture. Now, that may be a little confusing, the word nation, to you and I, because when we hear the word nation, we tend to think in geopolitical terms, right? We think about boundaries, geographical boundaries, political configurations, and we call that a nation, right? There's a nation of the United States of America, there's a nation of Canada, there's the nation of Mexico, and so forth. So we think in those geopolitical terms, but that is foreign to the Greek word ethnos, nation. That word has nothing to do with geography or politics. It has everything to do with a shared ethnic identity. Ethnic identity. Now, here in Romans 1.5 and other places, the plural ethnosin, the plural of ethnos is used. It occurs here out in the New Testament. But it, in the plural, its meaning is not as uniform as it is in the singular. Ethnos in the singular always refers to people groups in the New Testament. In the plural form, it could be people groups and it could be Gentile individuals as a grouping but that don't have a common characteristic other than that they are not Jews. Alright, so in the singular, it's always an ethnic people group. In the plural, which is what's used here in verse 5, Gentiles, you see it? It can be a people group or it could be just a group of individuals. For example, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. Don't have to turn there, but there the word in the plural is used, and it says the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So it's talking about a group of individuals, a group of Gentiles, a group of non-Jews that don't necessarily share any kind of common cultural language identity. They're just a grouping of non-Jews. So the question here before the house in verse 5 is when Paul says that he is called to bring about obedience consisting of faith among all the Gentiles, is he talking about just a group of non-Jews or is he speaking about these ethnic people groupings? And the implications of the answer to that question are significant. Context determines. Context is the answer to this question. But let me kind of build this a little bit for you. In the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? That was made in the 3rd century B.C. In the Septuagint, when ethnos in the plural is used, 
it speaks almost invariably of people groupings, translated nations. So, as far as the Old Testament understanding that, that feeds into the New Testament, it is almost uniformly speaking of people groups that exist outside of Israel. All right, just hang on to that data point for a minute. There is an Old Testament promise that is repeatedly given, a promise and an expectation that God will one day be worshipped, not just by Israel, but by the nations. Bernie read for us Psalm 67. He read Psalm 67 because I asked him to read Psalm 67 for us this morning because it speaks of that Old Testament promise and expectation that someday the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Creator God, will be worshipped among the nations. And again, not geopolitical groupings, but ethnic groupings. The great God of Israel, the Old Testament expectation is, will someday be recognized for who He is among all the people groups of the world. The foundation of that promise, by the way, appears in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. We're not going to turn there. You can write it down and look it up on your own. But there it's in the promise to Abraham, right? In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is, through your seed, through your descendants, the families of the earth will experience a blessing. And that blessing will come as individual members of those families put their faith in Jesus Christ, who is of the seed of Abraham, right? And when they do that, Galatians tells us, they become, by faith, children of whom? Abraham. They become his descendants and they receive this blessing. And so it's as individual members of ethnic groupings, nations, place faith in Jesus Christ that all the nations of the world experience the blessings promised to Abraham. You can see this, by the way, fulfilled prophetically in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. There, the Apostle John, by vision of Christ, fast forwards in history and and arrives at the throne room of God at the great consummation of the age and he is able to view what is going to go on. He's able to view the outcome of the church's evangelistic efforts throughout the ages. It's amazing. He gets to, you know, to to use a, a common metaphor, he gets to take the DVD player and press fast forward and go to the final scene, right? And look at the great consummation of the ages. The church exists in space and time. You and I are in space and time and we're laboring away and we're not seeing a lot of, quote, fruit of our ministry. But there at the end, it's all gathered together and we get to see what happens. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, that is Christ, to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue, and people, and nation. Appeal unto yourself. You took out of the stream of humanity representatives from all the nations, all the ethnic groupings, and you gather them together as a worshiping throng. They become your people. In the Old Testament, God chose from among all the nations, all the peoples of the world, a 
a particular grouping, right? A family. He began with a man called Abraham and through him. And as it expanded, he he formed it into an ethnic grouping, a nation, a people called Israel. And they were his chosen people, his worshiping ones. Well, here in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, there is again a worshiping people that have been chosen out by God. But now, rather than having just a single ethnic identity and culture and language, they are representatives of all pulled together into a great throng and mass that appear before His throne. So what is Paul talking about here? Romans 1.5. What does he mean? What does he mean when he says that the cynic went on, the essence of his ministry is to bring about the obedience consisting of faith among all the ethnicin, among the plural of ethnos, nations. Was he saying that his that the goal of his ministry was to bring about or, or to reach more and more Gentiles? Was that what he was saying? That his the core of his ministry, the reason for his commissioning, the reason that God uh, in Christ set him to do what he was to do was just that he could evangelize more and more non-Jews. Was that what it was about? Or was the went on the essence of his ministry to reach more and more people groups through the planting of indigenous churches. That's what I told you, it makes a difference. Was it just to reach more and more individuals for Jesus Christ or was it to reach more and more individual groupings for Jesus Christ? How you answer that question has tremendous implications for how you do ministry. But fortunately, we don't have to speculate. If we want to turn to Romans 15, Paul will clarify the issue for us. And I'm sure glad he does. Because I would hate to be stuck not knowing the answer to that question. But here in Romans 15, beginning in verse 18, Paul clarifies the issue. He clarifies what he means back in chapter 1 and verse 5. He clarifies the answer to the question is, was the sine qua non to reach more and more individual Gentiles or was it to reach more and more people groupings, nations? Paul says, verse 18, Paul, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as the Luricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who had not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now, having no further place for me in these regions... And since I've had for many years a longing to come to see you, and he goes on and on saying, I want to go to Spain and I need some money. Okay? We'll deal with that when I get there. But he makes two key statements here. One in verse 19 one in verse 23 that directly impact our understanding of what he's talking about in verse 5. In verse 19, notice that he says that he has... He has accomplished, right? God has accomplished through me at the end of verse 18. The obedience of the Gentiles in word and deed. 
so that from Jerusalem and around about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. He says, I have fully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ over a geographical area, by the way, that stretches from Jerusalem to modern-day Yugoslavia. I have fully preached the gospel. I have fully preached the gospel. And then in verse 23, he says, there's no further place for me in these regions. I have fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Yugoslavia and there is no place left for me here. Does that mean that everybody who would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Yugoslavia has now come to believe and the work is all done, pack up the tents and go home? Is that what he's saying? All the evangelism is all done. Pack it up, Jim. We don't need to do it anymore. Is that what he's saying? I've reached everybody. No, of course not. He's not saying that at all. In fact, later he tells Timothy, by the way, right? Timothy, do the work of a what? Evangelist. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. He tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. That's in Ephesus, by the way, where Paul's already been and already planted churches. So it's not, it cannot be when he, when he talks about that his commission, the sine qua non of his ministry, of his ministry, his apostleship, is to reach the Gentiles. It cannot be that it is just individual Gentiles. That Paul's ministry consists of preaching the gospel to as many Gentile people as he can find. It just can't be. So what is it? What is the essence of his ministry? What is the scope of this man's ministry? What is his concept of missionary enterprise? What is his concept of the missionary task? Is it winning more and more people to Christ? I think the answer is no. It is no. Paul's concept of the missionary task is reaching more and more people groups for Jesus Christ and planting churches who will, from those planted churches, then reach their neighbors for Jesus Christ. you see the difference? The difference is huge. Paul's saying that his purpose, his task, is to plant local indigenous churches among the people groups. And when he has done that, he is done. His task is fully completed. He says, there's nothing more for me to do. From Jerusalem to Yugoslavia, I've done it all. Time to move on to Spain. Has everybody been reached in that area? Of course not. They will be reached as these local indigenous churches begin to reach their neighbors for Jesus Christ and the Gospel will continue to grow and blossom. Church planting. That's what we're talking about. Church planting. What are the implications of this for us? What are the implications of this passage here? And I'm back in chapter 1, verse 5, so find your way back there. What are the implications for us? Well, that was one of the, one of the um, questions, major questions before the elders this past weekend and, and has been for some time previously to that. Well, here's what we believe the implications are for us as a fellowship. What are the implications of Romans 1.5 for us as a fellowship? Here they are. You ready? Number one. There's only two of them, but the second one has a bunch of subpoints. Okay? Number one, we must be involved in church planting. There it is. Okay, it's very simple. 
We must be involved in church planting, both domestically and internationally. By the grace of God, it is our desire to see four churches planted from this fellowship in the next ten years. Actually, in the next nine years, one's already come and gone. The clock is ticking. Now we've got nine years left to plant four churches domestically and internationally. Two domestically, two internationally. So that's number one implication. We must be involved in church planting. This is not something that we dabble at. This is not just a nice idea if it happens to occur. This is an essence of what we are about. Secondly, to that end, we have done or are doing the following. Okay, here's my version of the update, Bernie. And I wrote this um, before we even went up the hill. Okay? Here's what we have done. Here's what we are doing to fulfill what we believe is a necessary implication of this text. So 2A, if you're keeping it that way, 2A. We have set aside seed money for church planting. By the grace of God and the generosity of His people, we have run in the black for some time now. We are not a bank. We are not in the business to accumulate funds so that when Christ returns, we can hand Him a bag full of money and say, didn't we do a good job? We are to invest it in the work of the Gospel. And towards that end, we have set aside seed money, seed corn if you like, for the purpose of jump-starting church planting. That's the first thing. To be. Or not to be. No, to be. Okay. We are refocusing our international efforts towards church planting. That is, you probably noticed the missionary wall out there, the faces and names are changing. I've had a few people ask me about that. Some of it is just natural attrition through retirement and other things. Some things we have made some decisions on. The purpose of that, and there will be, by God's grace, by the end of this calendar year, new faces that go back up on the wall. And the new faces that go back up on the wall will be associated with church planting. Church planters. We are presently investigating various mission agencies looking for those that have a passion to do what we have a passion to do. Art was telling the elders while we were up the hill that there's a book about that fat listing all the mission agencies that there are. Is that just in America, right? That are headquartered out of North America. That fat. Okay? But when you finally boil it down to the ones that we are theologically and methodologically involved with, you could probably put it on a postcard. I don't know. But we are investigating how many there are. Some months ago, we had a man in here to speak to you, Executive Director of Whitefields Ministry. You remember that? Okay, We haven't forgotten Whitefields Ministry. We are working with them right now. Whitefields is, is dedicated to the task of supporting indigenous church planters. And we are committed to be involved with them that we might aid and assist in that process. Next month, there will be another gentleman who will come and speak, the Executive Director of Biblical Ministries Worldwide, known as BMW. Okay? He doesn't drive one, but that is the, uh, that's the acronym for the... Uh, they, they ought to change that. You know? Anyway, Biblical Ministries Worldwide will come and will speak with us. Because he has a passion in the same area. Another mission agency that we think we can work with. Third sub-point, C, 2C. 
We are seeking to partner with other churches of like faith and philosophy so that we do not go this task alone. We are not an island. We are looking for others who share a common commitment and understanding of the Word of God and a passion for the things that we have a passion for. We do not belong to a denomination, and by choice we do not belong to a denomination. We believe biblically that the biblical model is an independent church. But that doesn't mean we want to be so independent that we do everything by ourselves, right? We invent the wheel every single time. So we are looking for other churches. We have found a fellowship in Riverside that we are beginning to explore the possibilities of joint ministries with. It's early in the process, but we are getting to know each other. It's a courtship, if you like. Toward that end, next week, the pastor of that church will come and will speak with you. He will come and preach from this pulpit next week. And I will be in Riverside preaching in his pulpit next week. He told me that he's getting a better deal because he only has to preach once. I have to preach twice in Riverside. Okay? Congregations about this size, they have a smaller facility. They run two services. His name is Milton Vincent. Hopefully that name should ring a bell to you because you have a gospel primer that he wrote. Okay? So you can bring yours in and get him to autograph it if you'd like. Okay, I'll tell Milton I said he'd do that. But Milton will be here next Sunday to open the Word of God with you so that you can get to know him. Alright, so we're seeking to partner with some other churches. Fourth, D. We are strategizing how FIT can become more effective in training people to be involved in church planting. We're talking about the FIT ministry, the Bible school over there. What can we do with regard to the Bible school to, to enlist its, its uh, support in the effort of church planting? That will necessitate some curriculum changes over time. We're even... Uh, Seriously committed to bringing in an, an advisory board that will enlist people from outside of Foothill to help us in that process. E, I think. Whatever is next. We are praying for domestic church planting opportunities. We are praying for domestic church planting opportunities. I hope you are too. Come tonight to pray with us. That God would open up a possibility, an opportunity to plant a church domestically. And I'll, I'll go even one step further than that. We are praying for the opportunity to plant a church in the Inland Valley. This Inland Empire. Is that what it's called? Inland Empire. I don't even know how many people are here. There's more and more all the time. One of the fastest growing regions in the country. We want to plant a church here and we want to do it soon. Next, F, thank you, F. We are seeking to disciple you and us towards the sacrifices that will be mandated if we are to fulfill the vision of planting churches. If we are going to plant churches, we are going to have to sacrifice as a body. We're going to all of us be called on to make sacrifices. And I don't know exactly what they are. God alone knows what those sacrifices are. There'll be undoubtedly some financial sacrifice. There'll undoubtedly be some leadership sacrifice. There'll be undoubtedly other sacrifices that'll be called upon to make. We may come and ask some of you, would you go in support of a church plant? Next. G, thank you. 
good to have a teleprompter in the front row. Okay? G. We are praying for a greater level of ethnic diversity within Foothill Bible Church. We are praying that the Lord would provide a greater level of ethnic diversity within this fellowship so that we will grow in our understanding of God's work among people of all different people groups, different ethnicities. We are praying that God would do that so that we would get to know people that don't think and and act exactly like we do. That we might have a better understanding of God's worldwide work. The scope of the Gospel is worldwide. Sixth. Sixth. You guys don't mind staying for communion, do you? I didn't think so. Okay, here we go. Sixth. Alright, I just can't, I can't stop. Sixth. The significance. The significance behind Paul's Gospel is Christ's glory. This, is, this whole sermon series, these last three weeks have been driving to this one point. And here I am and I only got a few minutes left. But anyway. Okay? The significance behind Paul's Gospel is Christ's glory. Verse 5. In that little expression tucked at the end of verse 5, for His name's sake. Do you see it? For His name's sake. Biblically, the word name connotes the person in His true character and significance. When it talks about a name, it's talking about that person, that individual. The name stands in as shorthand for this person in His character and His significance. Therefore, the expression, for His name's sake, what is it communicating? Paul is communicating here that he does all that he does so that Jesus Christ our Lord might be known and glorified. Okay, that's what he's communicating here. All that has gone before is all about the glory of Jesus Christ. It is making him known in his glory. We could do a sermon series on the glory of God. We do not have time to do that. And we're not going to do that, alright? The topic is vast. The topic is deep. Let me just prompt your mind with a couple of things. Just We won't even turn there. Just mark it down. Ephesians chapter 1, right? That one big long sentence in the Greek three times speaking about the eternal truths of redemption. Paul says it is for His glory. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. It is for His glory that God redeems the people unto Himself. I will turn you to Romans 15 again, the end of the book. Notice what Paul says, verses 8 and 9. Romans 15, 8 and 9. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. We'll unpack that in the future. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. Do you see it? Christ came so that the Gentiles will glorify God for His mercy. It is all about the glory of God, the glory of Christ. God is passionate for His glory. God is most passionate for His glory. There is, in fact, nothing that God loves more than His glory. That is the supreme thing that He loves. Putting Himself on display. So that men and angels see Him for who He truly is and worship Him. Okay, God is all about 
himself. All about himself. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I delay my wrath. For my praise, I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? God is all about His own glory. It consumes Him. Now, in anyone else, this attitude would be sinful. If you were all about your own glory, that would be a wicked sin. And in fact, it is the root of your wickedness. It's because you are about your own glory. We'll unpack that in the next few chapters. But for God, it is not sinful. In fact, for God not to be about His own glory, it would be sinful. For it would deny who He really is. He is the ultimate one. It's all about Him. Everything revolves around Him. Everything is designed to bring Him glory, to reflect it back to Him so that we would see Him and love Him. Verse 5, Romans 1. Paul is in the ministry. Not for personal gain. Not for the benefit of his converts. But for the glory and benefit of Jesus Christ. For the glory and benefit of Jesus Christ. It says, this reminds us, the true end of gospel preaching and winning people to Jesus Christ is not about their well-being. It is about God's glory. We preach the Gospel not ultimately to see people saved for their own benefit, but ultimately to see them saved for the glory of God. That is the motivation, or should be the motivation, of our outreach and our mercy ministries. Beloved, if you are involved in ministry for the good of people, if that's your highest goal, if that's what's driving you, you will soon wear out. You will grow tired. People are frequently ungrateful, unresponsive, hard-hearted, selfish, and lazy. And that, by the way, are the redeemed people. Okay? Those are the redeemed people. It's all about God and His glory. All about that. Love for the unbeliever can never be our highest motivation in evangelism. Never. Nor can obedience to the Great Commission be our highest motive in evangelism. They are motives. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there is no motivation there. I'm just saying they're not the ultimate motive. They're not the highest motive. They're not the most God-honoring motive. The most worthy motive. And they're not the motives that will keep you going. It's the glory of Christ. It's about the glory of Christ. Listen to this quote from a man by the name of John Dawson, a leader in a youth with a mission. Quote, Have you ever wondered what it feels like to have a love for the lost? This is a term we use as part of our Christian jargon. Many believers search their hearts in condemnation, looking for the arrival of some feeling of benevolence that will propel them into bold evangelism. It will never happen. It is impossible to love the lost. You can't feel deeply for an abstraction or a concept. 
You would find it impossible to love deeply an unfamiliar individual portrayed in a photograph, let alone a nation or a race or something as vague as all lost people. Don't wait. Listen to him. Don't wait for a feeling of love in order to share Christ with a stranger. You already love your heavenly Father, and you know that this stranger is created by Him, but separated from Him. So take those first steps in evangelism because you love God. It is not primarily out of a compassion for humanity that we share our faith or pray for the lost. It is, first of all, love for God. Mark that down. We pray and we share not for their benefit, but for God's. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Dawson continues, he says, humanity does not deserve the love of God any more than you or I do. We should never be Christian humanists. Taking Jesus to poor, sinful people. Reducing Jesus to some kind of product that will better their lot. People deserve to be damned. But Jesus, the suffering Lamb of God, deserves the reward of His suffering. That's the message of Isaiah 53. He will look on the travail of His soul and be satisfied. You and I and everyone else deserve hell. That's what we deserve. It is Christ alone who deserves the glory of redeeming wicked people. Philippians 2, verses 9-11, through 11, Paul writes there that God has highly exalted Christ with the intention that every knee will someday bow to Him, right? Right? Therefore, if we want to be aligned with God's purposes for the Gospel, we've got to be jealous for the same thing that God is jealous for. And that is His own glory. Let me ask you a question. What keeps you going in ministry? What keeps you going week in and week out, month by month, year by year? What keeps you going? Maybe you're burned out. I've heard people tell me that. Pastor, I'm just burned out in ministry. If you're burned out in ministry, maybe it's because you're focusing on the wrong things. Maybe you're focused on the wrong things. Apostle John tells us the early Christians went out for the sake of the name. Because any other reason just doesn't measure up. Beloved, it's all about Christ. It is all about Christ. He is the content of the good news for sinners. He is the subject of the Scriptures. He is the humiliated and exalted One. He is the One to whom we owe obedience consisting of faith. He is the hope of the nations. And He is the only One, the only One worthy of glory. Let's pray. Lord God, please give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ in the marvelous Gospel. 
Renew within our hearts a passion, a a burning desire to see His name exalted from one end of this land to another. On distant shore among people groups for His name's sake. Help us, our Father, to get our eyes off our own selfish agendas. To put them on the glory of Christ. Amen.